Our text this morning comes from the book of Esther, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. It says, So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, the wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Well, Alistair Begg tells the story of one of the unsung heroes of World War II, a, a Scottish physicist by the name of Sir Robert Watson Watt. And Watt's major contribution for which he was later knighted for was his pioneering leadership in the area of radar technology, a technology that proved greatly beneficial for the British Royal Air Force in their defense and in their battles against the German Luftwaffe. And decades later, as Sir Watson Watt was driving the roads of Canada, he was pulled over for speeding. Shot with, you guessed it, a new invention, the old radar gun. And Sir Watt, recognizing the irony of the situation, wrote a little poem, and this is what he said. Pity Sir Robert Watson Watt. Strange target of his radar plot. And thus with others, I could mention a victim of his own invention. And thus with others, I could mention a victim of his own invention. And as we will see this morning, and in a much more profound and tragic sense, that's exactly what could be said about the person of Haman. He will be the victim of his own invention. He will die the death he designed for someone else. And in doing so, illustrate the kind of person that King Solomon warns us about, warns his son about in Proverbs chapter 1, where he says, but these men, these evil men, these men lie in wait for their own blood. 
They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. You see what Solomon says there is those who ultimately do evil, they don't just ruin the lives of the people around them, which is going to happen to Haman here, but they ruin their own life. They drink their own poison. They set an ambush to their own existence. And that is really the life and the death, the rise and the fall of Haman, who meets his end at the end of this chapter we're looking at this morning. And so as we walk through chapter 7, here's, what I, here's how I want to break it down. Here's what I want to do is I want to just kind of break it into three subsections. So three parts. And, and the three parts are this. It's going to be Esther's request, okay? Then it's going to be the king's response, and then it's Haman's reversal. So it's Esther's request, it's the king's response, and it's Haman's reversal. And, and let's start with Esther's request, because here's the bottom line when it comes to Esther. It's go time. Like, this is the moment. The time has come, and it's time for her to move. She's got to shoot her shot, right? Everything she has done since the moment, since the moment Mordecai came to her and said, you are placed here to save your people, it's going to culminate in what's about to happen. Because what, what's about to happen is she's going to go before the king and she's going to come clean. This is who I am. This is who my people are. This is what has happened. There's an edict to kill me. And we need your help. Save us. Help us, O king. So she's, she's going to come clean right now. And with that in mind, so get kind of that type of pressure in mind, that's the spot she's in. That's where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 7, where she is with the king and Haman at this banquet that she has called at this feast where they're hanging out and they're, they're drinking wine and they're spending time together. And we know from previous chapters, this is not the first time they're doing this, right? This is the second day in a row. So if we rewind back all the way, remember, the first time Esther goes before the king, she hasn't seen him in a month, and she risks her life. And so she goes before the king, not knowing if he's going to accept her, if he's going to invite her in. He invites her in. He says, oh, Esther, what, what is it? What do you want? She says, I want to hang out. I want to hang out with you, and I want to hang out with Amon. Let's have a banquet, and let's connect. So they do that, and then they have the banquet, and she says, well, and then the king says, well, Esther, what is it? What do you want? What can I do for you? And she says, here's what I want. Can we do the same thing again tomorrow? Can we gather together again tomorrow, you, me, Haman, drink wine, hang out, and then I will, I'll, I'll let you know what I'm thinking. Then I'll kind of reveal what's on my mind. And so, once again, what, what's, what, what is Esther doing? And Emmett hit on this a few weeks ago, but it's like, is she stalling? Is she afraid? Like, why the delay? Why a second banquet? Why um, not just come out and, and ask for it? Why not just make the request? And the reason is she wants to reconnect and reestablish her relationship with the king. They haven't been together for a month. And maybe some distance has grown between the two. And so she wants to remove that distance both physically and emotionally. And what we see as we go is one of the things is that as the story progresses is we find out that Esther is really more than a pretty face. 
Like she's got some real substance. There, there, she's not just, uh, there's not just beauty, there's brains. She's not just a woman of grace, but of grit. Yeah, she, she's, she's shrewd, she's wise. And she knows what she needs to do. And what she needs to do is get some time with the king so she can remind the king, you, you really love me. Like you chose me. I'm your girl. Remember why you chose me. Let's reconnect, right? Because then she'll be in the environment that best enables her to share her request. And there's wisdom in that. It's not manipulating. There's just, there's wisdom there. It's, it's interesting. My, my journey as a parent, as a father, involved my three, first three kids being boys, right? And I'm an old football coach, like, you know, so with my boys, I mean, I love them. They're my guys. But um, having three boys did not prepare me for having daughters. <laughs> That's a totally different deal because my boys asked me for something. I'm like, hey, look, I didn't have that. You don't need that. Don't ask me about it again. Let it go. Let's move on. And say yes, sir. You know? But that doesn't work on girls, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work on daughters. And I seem to have a hard time with that. So this week, this happened this week. I was driving with um, my oldest daughter, Abigail, who's three. And, she, and she's in the back. She's going, And I'm like, what's going on? She goes, God, Daddy, what, what letter is that? I said, well, Abby, that is the letter C. You used to hear that in the word like cat or cushion or coach. But you got to be careful because it sounds a lot like the letter K, like kite. So be careful. And she looks at me, and if you know Abby, she's got these huge brown kind of Disney princess eyes, just like big brown eyes. She looks at me, she says, Daddy, you are so good with letters. <laughs> and look, like, I'm 40 years old, man. I should know my letters. <laughs> but the way she said it made me feel so good about myself. And I was like, I, I'm, I'm not even kidding. I was like, well, I mean... I think I am. I mean, I am pretty good with letters. <laughs> Put a lot of work in there. Sharpening my linguistic skills. And she says, yeah, you are really smart. I love you. And I will always love you, Daddy. Then she said, can, can I have a piece of chocolate from your office? <laughs> and you think I would go feel like used or whatever, but I, I was ready to drive her to Hershey, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Get her the good stuff. And she was not manipulating me because I am good with letters. <laughs> and she does love me, but she was connecting before requesting. That's what she was doing. She was making the connection before the request. Because there's power in relationship and there's, there's power in that. And that, that's what Esther is doing here. She doesn't just roll in cold turkey. I haven't seen you in a month, but I need you to do this. Boom. Now she knows she's got to reestablish that relationship, wait for the right time. And when that time comes, it's her moment. And she's got to lean in and she's got to risk it because this is what she's been working towards. And so the king says, seriously, Esther, what, what is it? Like, what is it that 
you want? What can I do for you? Ask and it will be given. And finally, she comes clean, starting in verse 3. It says, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. So Esther's request is a plea for her life and for the life of her people. And I think it's safe to say it is not at all what Ahasuerus thought she was going to ask. It'd almost be as if Victoria and I were getting together and she, she says, hey, honey, can we talk later tonight about our summer plans? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And, and so we get together and I say, hey, so what do you think? And I'm like, what do you, what, do you want to go to Texas? Forget, you want to go to Florida? Should we try something new? Should we go to Colorado? And she just says, honestly, just I don't want to go to prison. And you're like, huh? What are you talking about? I mean, that's so out of left field. I guarantee you, has awareness, that's the last thing he's thinking is that she's going to come in there and make a request for her life. So you can just imagine his shock, right? And, and Esther now provides a little bit more information and an explanation for why she's making this request. She says, for we have been sold, Right? I and my people, we've been, we've been to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our afflictions not to be compared with the loss of the king. And so notice the words that Esther chooses here. Destroyed, killed, annihilated. Did those ring a bell? It's the exact words from the edict. So if you go back in chapter 3 and you look at the edict that went out, against the people, against her people, against the Jews, this is what it says. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews. So she uses the exact same language. And you wonder maybe if there's some connections being made for Hazawares. If he's going, wait a second. Like that rings a bell. And so Esther finally lets the king know what is going on. And and in doing so, notice what Esther also finally does. Finally, is she publicly identifies herself as a Jew. She publicly says, these are my people. She's kept this secret the entire relationship. And we're talking for years at this point. For years, she's had to keep her Jewishness hidden. For years, she's kind of had to hide her loyalty and her allegiances. But she finally says, for I and what? My people. This is who I am. This is my tribe. This is my family. This is my God. And so she just bears all, right? She says, this is who I am. And she does so, frankly, at this point, not really knowing what the king's response might be. Because it could be, what? Why have you not told me this? Why are you keeping secrets from me? I thought I knew you. So she's risking it all right here. And she stands for her faith. But it's time to stand. That's the point. It's time. 
And, and, and the reality is that all of us will come to a point in our life, a place, moments, where it's time to stand. Where there's no, there's no room for, for closet Christianity. There's no such thing as a, as a silent disciple. But the time comes where we, we are to publicly identify our identity as a follower of Christ and to pledge our allegiance to him and to Jesus himself and say, this is where my allegiance lies. And, and, and when you stand for Christ, when you, in word and deed, right? Some of us are good at one or maybe not so much the other, right? Yeah, we can proclaim Christ, but we have nothing that backs it up as evidence for our faith. Or maybe we, you know, take the approach of, um, well, my work's going to do all my talking. And so we never speak. And so that we, we have this hiddenness or this secrecy or this disconnect between our words and what we do. But when we stand for Christ and walk in his ways, the truth is it's likely going to cost us something. I mean, it, it may cost you a relationship. It may cost you um, a promotion. It may cost you an opportunity. It may cost you adoration and acceptance. It may cost you money. But the cost is part of the calling. And the cost is worth the reward. The cost is part of the calling and the cost is worth the reward. A passage I think about fairly often, it's a pretty well-known passage. It comes from John chapter 6. And so Jesus has been teaching. He's walked on water. He's fed the 5,000. And momentum is, I mean, the, the church is growing, so to speak. The movement is rising. And people are following him. And people are listening to him. And the crowds are there. And he enters into this pretty tough teaching where he's calling people to be all in, where he's saying he's the only way. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And that goes out to the crowd, and they go, oh, oh, man, that, those are hard teachings, it says. Like, it's just hard. What do you, I mean, good gracious. And then it says this in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, he went into a hard place that crossed the line of comfort and many said, I'm out. I'm done. I didn't sign up for this. I just signed up for the good stuff. And Jesus, in one of the most poignant moments, I think, of the Gospels, he looks at the disciples and he essentially says, what about you? Are you going to go too? And it's one of Peter's, like, shining moments. Because he looks at Jesus and he says, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. It's just like this beautiful response by Peter. But the reality is it's not always easy to stand for God. It's not always easy to publicly identify him. And it's one of the reasons many will walk away. Many will turn. Many will say, this is not for me because I don't appreciate any opposition and I don't want to risk anything. 
But Esther is an example here of she goes before the king, she risks it all, she identifies herself as I am a Jew. I serve the God of Yahweh. These are my people. Will you help us? Will you help us? She speaks up. So that's Esther's, excuse me, that's Esther's request to the king, save my life. Now we have the king's response, right? We have the king's response. And his initial response is, who is doing this? Like, who done this? What is happening? Go to verse 5. says, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And now Esther's like, I'm glad you asked. Because he's right there. Unbelievable. He's in the room with us. Verse 6, and Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman's probably like eating a, you know, a panini or something. You know, he's like, oh, shucks. <laughs> That's not good. That's not good. Because verse 7 says, and Esther said, a foe and enemy, the wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So notice again the wisdom of Esther, okay? She's designed the conversation to unfold in such a way where she's like revealing a plot against the king. You notice that? Because the king doesn't know this, and so she's going to tell the king, you have no idea what's going on. There, there's somebody here that's trying to kill me your beloved queen, and he's trying to hurt you. And it's this wicked guy right here. So even the way the conversation is structured, having Haman there, how everything comes out, she is structured in such a way where she's unveiling a plot. She's revealing the plot that's against the king. And so Esther calls out Haman's evil. Haman is terrified, and for good reason, because the king's hot. Like, he's angry, he gets up in a wrath, he, he storms out of the room, and he goes to the palace garden. Why? Well, probably for a variety of reasons. He's really angry, and at the same time, he's like, oh, man, this is complicated. Because he signed the edict. He's not some innocent bystander. He signed the edict set to kill his wife, right? And so he, he, he's in a, bit of a, in a bit of a pickle. And he needs time to think about this. Clearly, he's furious at Haman. But at the same time, he signed the death warrant. But if he kills Haman as prime minister for execute for a warrant that he issued, an edict that he issued, man, that's, that doesn't look really good. So he's probably out in the garden kind of processing, okay, I am really mad. And I want to kill Haman, but how, how is this going to work? Like, how am I going to get myself out of this mess? And Haman is in there, and he is terrified, not knowing if he's going to live, not knowing what his fate will be. But if he had any hope to live, that is completely erased when the king returns. Because when the king returns, he sees Haman doing an absolute no-no. So if you look at verse 8, it says, The king returned from the palace garden, to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, 
And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my own, in my presence, in my own house? So here's the scene and here's the problem, okay? The scene is that the king comes in from the garden and he finds Haman likely groveling at Esther's feet, like grabbing her feet, maybe kissing her feet, which was normal in that day. Okay, if you were begging. And he's like on the couch because you ate reclining on couches. So he's like, he's like on the, he's like leaning on the couch where she's at, groveling before her. And while that might seem like embarrassing, embarrassing for him or for us in our day, that was illegal in his day. You cannot do that because you're not at the foot of your wife nor of some random wife, but the king's wife. And so the law on that day is you couldn't even be alone with the king's wife or one of his concubines. So really, according to law, when, when the king left, Haman should have left the room. But his desperation led to a violation. He's not thinking straight. And so Esther's called him out, and so his response is to grovel and beg at Esther's feet. And so then the king comes in, he's already upset, and he sees Haman at the foot of Esther, making a move on her, so to speak. And that's why it says, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? So what's he saying? He says, it's, wasn't it enough, Haman, that you set out a plot to kill my queen? Now you're going to sexually violate her in my house? You're going to touch her in my house? And at that moment, he's dead. Like, he real dead. Haman's a goner. His hope is gone. His destiny is secure. Because he's got a convenient reason to kill Haman now. Haman has violated his, his wife, the queen. He has every right to kill Haman, Right? And you have to admit, it is a scene rich with irony. Not only because we have the king killing Haman for a bill he agreed to, but Haman's final move is kneeling before a Jew. You get that? Where did this all start? This all started because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. Mordecai the Jew wouldn't bow to Haman. And Haman's life's going to end groveling and bowing at the feet of the Jew named Esther. And it, and it reminds me of the truth that we will all one day bow. No matter how many people bow to you right now, everybody bowed to Haman. You remember that? That was his beef with Mordecai. Because Mordecai was the exception. Everybody bowed to Haman. But Haman ends his life bowing in despair to Esther. And all of us will one day bow. It is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And, and really, the only thing that will be different is the circumstance. Because will we bow in accepted judgment or will we bow in the gratitude of God's grace? 
It'll be one of the two. And we actually read that this morning. You may have missed it in the call to worship in Philippians 2. Because Paul writes there how every tongue will confess and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. Did you know that? That's people who are for God and people who are in opposition to God, but they're going to recognize he is God. All knees will one day bow, no matter how many knees bowed to them. And so Haman's life ends with this picture, right? He will end his life on the gallows, but at the end of the day, he's not there because of the king. He's there because of his own pride. His own pride hung him on the gallows. And this brings us to the third and kind of final section of the chapter, which is the reversal, Haman's reversal. So we have Esther's request, we have the king's response, and we have Haman's reversal. Because after the king sees this, Haman is a goner, and it doesn't take long. And you get a taste of how unliked he was, right? Like there's not really a Haman apologist in the palace. Because the king says, so I mean, look what the text says. It says, as soon as the word left the king's mouth, we're in verse 8 here. It says, and the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, those whose words saved the king is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai then the wrath of the king abated. So the king says, he's done. And right away, the people are going, got it, got him right here. What time? Three o'clock? I know a place. Let's go to his house. We'll do it. No worries. You can be there. We'll get done by the day. I mean, it's just like, wow. Like they want to kill him in a hurry. I mean, it's like, that. Ah, I know the place. We'll do it by his own house. I mean, you can just get the sense that this is a total jerk. This is a total jerk. He's an evil person, and he's going to hang on the gallows because of his own pride. They can't kill him fast enough. And so we see this incredible reversal, because I want you to think about this, okay? Haman is going to hang on the gallows he made for Mordecai. And in the very next chapter, Mordecai is going to assume his position next to the king. So they're going to they're swap. Haman's going to meet his demise at the same time Mordecai will rise. And he'll become the king's number two. And so this, this reversal that takes place, it reminds me in many ways of the, the at the end of the day, the reversals at the, at the heart of the gospel. So let's finish there because this is all pointing towards that. It's all pointing towards that. And when you think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you do recognize it is a gospel of cosmic reversal. Cosmic reversal. The world's been infected. It will be renewed. Right? You have the fall. You have redemption. Think of, um, think of the reversal of the incarnation. That the God of heaven who spoke everything into being takes on flesh. And how does he enter into time and space? As a baby. As a baby. So the one who needs nothing enters into time and space as a baby where he's dependent on his mother for everything. 
So you have the great reversal of the incarnation where the God of heaven and earth puts on flesh. It's an incredible reversal. And the reversal of the incarnation leads to the reversal of what? The resurrection. I mean, the resurrection is the ultimate reversal. Death defeating death. Life coming from death. So the resurrection is the ultimate reversal of the enemy thinking that death has defeated Christ and sin, but the reversal is that death that through death, he's defeated Christ, but the great reversal is that Christ, through death, has defeated sin. And he displays that in the resurrection. So you have the reversal of the resurrection. And then thirdly, you have the reversal of grace. The reversal of grace. That because of the reversal of the incarnation and because of the reversal of the resurrection, we can experience the reversal of God's grace. As those who are far from God, renewed in relationship as those who are sinners who are redeemed as saints covered in the blood of Christ clothed in his righteousness as God takes us as enemies and makes us friends right he takes us as those who are defeated in our sin and then brings about victory in Christ it's the great reversal of God's grace at the heart of the gospel so you have the reversal of the incarnation that leads to the reversal of the resurrection, which makes us re- the recipients of the reversal of God's grace, trophies of his grace. And those who trust in him, ultimately, they will not experience the demise like Haman did, begging for forgiveness when it's too late but they'll experience the rise like Mordecai did, where they'll go from outside the gates to dining with the king as part of the reversal of God's grace. And so the choice is before us. Will your life end in a demise or will it end in a rise? That's the simple question. And Jesus in John chapter six, that same chapter I referenced earlier, he also said these words, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Because those in Christ never meet their ultimate demise. They rise with him. We rise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks this morning for your great gospel your gospel of grace made possible through the person and work of Christ in the incarnation as he put, put as Jesus you put on humanity and dwelt with your people you tabernacled with us you lived the perfect life we could not live dying the death that we deserve but the great reversal of the resurrection is that your death was the payment and you paid it in full And the resurrection is the declaration that the check cleared and that we can experience the reversal of your grace that takes us from darkness to life, that takes us from death to life, that takes us from enemies to friends through faith in you. 
And so this morning, God, I just place that before your people. God, would we daily, would we daily choose to give you our allegiance? God, I pray that we would daily choose to stand up for you in word and deed, knowing that because of Christ, we will rise. And no matter the opposition we face temporally, no matter of the disappointment we experience momentarily, God, that we will one day dine with the King. So Father, right now I pray, I pray by the work of your Spirit that you would open our eyes to the wonder of the Savior and we would be like Peter in those moments where people turn away, where the things get hard and we say, but to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. Would that be our story? Would that be our song? As those who have received this great reversal of God's grace, this exchange of our sin for your righteousness, this exchange for, of our death for life. So we worship you. We thank you for this story that teaches us so much. And God, would we live it out? Would we walk in allegiance to you? And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, let's sing, let's sing, let's sing, let's stand and sing.